So with that in mind, would you please stand for a reading of God's word? We'll be reading this morning from 1 Samuel chapter 13. Samuel writes, Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it and said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul has said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. When Saul went out to meet him and greet him, Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, that you did not come with the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but you know your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. The prophet Jeremiah wrote that the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. Now, you, you don't have to be a believer in God to know that that is true. That if you're left alone with your thoughts for long enough, every one of us in the sanctuary must admit that there is something dark deep down in our hearts that distorts the truth. The truth about who God is and the truth about who we are as his people. Now, when we hear that the heart is deceitful and sick, so often what we think of is only our emotions. We think that way because as Westerners, we have long been taught that the heart is the place of our feelings, the place of our emotions. Our mind is the seat of intellect. It's the place where we have rational thought. Our Greek ancestors, the ancient Greeks, they believed that the way to truth was to subdue the heart. 
to conquer the emotions, to only think rationally with the mind. Today, in our postmodern world, you almost find the exact opposite. What you'll find is that people don't think that truth is through rational thought, what you can observe objectively in the world around us, they think that truth is inside you. Truth is found in what you feel. So what is the truth? The truth is, neither one of those is true. You see, in the Bible, the heart and mind are not so separate. Thinking, feeling, and doing are intimately connected. Biblically speaking, the heart is not just a source and foundation of emotion. But in the Bible, the heart is that engine, that thing that drives everything, yes, that we feel, but also what we think and even what we do. You see, whatever your heart wants, you will then do. As Jesus said, where whatever your treasure is, there your heart is also. And so when when Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick, he's not just talking about our emotion. He's talking about the core of who we are as human beings. So what does this heart sickness look like? This morning as we jump back into 1 Samuel, we're going to get a rare glimpse, an honest look at just how deceitful the human heart can be. And as we look at the heart, the dark heart of King Saul, if we're going to be honest this morning, we're going to see something of our own hearts. We're going to see that deep down, our hearts are fearful. They are foolish and they are defiant. But ultimately, my hope for you and me this morning is that we dive deep into the darkness of the human heart. What we will find is that there is light that Jesus Christ, the light of the world, has come to light up our hearts, and he has given us his very heart, his heart planted deep within us as his people. So the first way I want to look at this this morning is this. The human heart is fearful. I want you to look with me at verse 1. Samuel tells us that Saul lived for one year, and then he became king. And then he had reigned for two years. And after he had reigned for two years as king of Israel... He gathered an army of 3,000 men. Now, these were Saul's chosen men, handpicked by him. Just 3,000, but they were strong and they were able. He divided this army into two parts. 2,000 troops that Saul would command himself. And then he gave 1,000 troops to his son, Jonathan, to serve under his command. Now, I don't know if it was because Jonathan was young or ambitious, but Jonathan decided to lead his little company of troops of a thousand men to go and attack the Philistines. And you know what? They actually won. But here's the problem. All Jonathan and his troops did was just to poke the bear. And they awakened this beast that was the Philistine nation. I want you to look with me at verse 4. Samuel tells us that all Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And so in verse 5, we are told that the Philistines mustered to fight 
They wanted revenge. And so they gathered 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and as many foot soldiers as there are grains of sand at the beach. I want to stop right there. Remember, how many troops were in Saul's army? Just 3,000. How many troops are in the Philistine army? There are so many, you can't even count them. So what did Saul's army do? They ran away in fear. I want you to look with me, verse 6. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and tombs and in cisterns. Now these were Saul's chosen men. His 3,000 best troops. And here they were, running away like cowards, hiding themselves in fear and holes in the ground. Now, on the one hand, who could blame them, right? I mean, would you want to fight in a battle with those kinds of odds? But on the other hand, you have to remember all that they had seen God do. Sure, their little army of 3,000 was no match for the Philistines, but the Philistines were no match for their God. And they had time and time again seen God deliver them in the hardest of situations. Find themselves, yes, hard-pressed. Find themselves, yes, surrounded by the enemy, and yet God rescued them over and over and over again. And so what I want us to see this morning is that this is what fear does to us. Fear can be a powerful thing. As we look around our world, as we watch the news, as we just see our own city, the reality is there is much to be afraid of. And what fear does to us is it overwhelms us and it causes us to forget who God is. It causes us to forget what he has done Fear makes us a forgetful people. But you see, Saul's army weren't the only ones who were fearful that day. Saul was fearful too. I want you to look at verse 8. We're told that Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But when Samuel did not come to Gilgal, the people were scattering from him. So what's happening here? Saul had been commanded by Samuel to wait. Don't go to battle just yet. Wait until I come and I will offer a sacrifice before you go into battle. And so Saul, he waited. He waited for seven days, but he didn't wait the entire seventh day. And as he's watching his army begin to scatter, all deserting him, he begins to become fearful and he does what you and I do when we become fearful. He took matters into his own hands. What I want you to see is that Saul's fear, it wasn't external. It was something far more dark, something far more deep. Saul wasn't afraid of the Philistine army. He was afraid of losing control. As he watched his own army scatter from him, he was afraid of losing his authority. He was afraid of becoming powerless. 
And so he clamped down the last remaining shred of control that he thought he had, and he took matters into his own hands. You see, this is the thing I think we have to recognize about fear. Fear affects us all. Fear is the great equalizer. It doesn't matter if you're a lowly soldier in Saul's army or if you are King Saul himself. Fear affects every one of us. A recent study done by the American Psychological Association found that we are, as Americans, we are becoming increasingly fearful with each passing year. 39% of Americans report that they are more afraid and more anxious than they were last year. Well, what are we afraid of? We're fearful about our safety. We're fearful about our health. We're fearful about our finances fearful about our families, we're fearful about our occupations and our work, we're fearful about politics. In other words, we're fearful about the things that matter most to us. We're fearful about losing control. And so let me ask you something. What are you afraid of? What keeps you up at night? What fills you with anxiety? What do you worry about? If you would have asked me that question a few years ago, I would have told you nothing. You see, I thought, as a pastor, as a Christian, that my answer should be nothing, that, I, that I'm not afraid of anything. I'm strong. And it took going on a silent retreat to realize that that's a lie. That deep down the truth is, my heart is fearful, just like everybody else's. I'm afraid of letting people down. I'm afraid of getting it wrong. I'm afraid of being misunderstood. I'm afraid of misspeaking as I preach a sermon. See, whatever it is that you love the most, those things you're so tempted to be afraid of and Here's what I learned. Here's what I learned about my own fear that I believe is true about yours as well. When we are afraid of these things, we do everything we can in our own power to conquer those fears on our own. This is what it looks like. If you're afraid of what people think of you, then you will work tirelessly to manage their expectations, to become a people pleaser, to make sure that they think well of you, and you'll obsess over it. If you're fearful about your finances, then you'll continue and overly obsess over managing your investments, or you'll work tirelessly at your job at the expense of your family. You see, deep down, we're just like Saul. When we become afraid, we take matters into our own hands. And when we do that, we lose the most important fear of all. We lose our fear of the Lord. When we become fearful, we forget the awe and the glory and the majesty of God. We forget that he has always been in control, that the same God who spoke the universe into existence is providentially looking over you and me and everything that's going on in our lives. 
we forget that this sovereign and powerful God is also good, and he does good. When we are afraid, we forget. And so second, the second thing we see in Saul's heart is that the human heart is foolish. Again, I want you to look at verse 8. Samuel waits, or Saul waits seven days. He waits seven days because Samuel told him to, but he doesn't wait the full seventh day. Fearfully, seeing his army scatter, he says this, verse 9, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. In other words, you know, just let me do it. We can't wait for Samuel any longer. Just let me do it. Now, what you have to realize is that Samuel was God's prophet. He was God's spokesman. What that means is that when Saul disobeyed Samuel, he wasn't just ignoring Samuel's instructions. He was ignoring the very word of God. You have to recognize just how foolish this truly was. Verse 10, as soon as he had finished the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. Saul went out to meet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw the people were scattering, that you did not come in the days appointed, that the Philistines had mustered. In other words, notice Saul's response. He has been caught red-handed. He knows what he did was wrong. And so he's playing the blame game. First, he tries to blame his own army. Look, they've scattered from me. What did you want me to do? Then he tries to blame Samuel. Look, you did not come. And then he tries to blame the Philistine army. They're just too much. But every one of these is a poor excuse for disobeying God's word. So notice what Samuel says to him. It's an important choice of words. Verse 13, Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. He doesn't say you were immoral. He doesn't even say you were disobedient. He says, Saul, you have been a fool. Have you ever done something so wrong, so wrong that it could be described as foolish? No? Yeah, me neither. I grew up in Waco, Texas, Sikkim, Bears. I didn't go to Baylor, but I respect Baylor. I grew up in Waco, Texas, and um, way before Chip and JoJo made Waco a cool place to live. And so man, we, we just had a lot of time on our hands. And so growing up in this, this kind of small town, you kind of had to make your own fun. So I want to look at every young man who's in this sanctuary right now. Look me in the eyes. And you promise me you're never going to do what I'm about to say. Around the 4th of July, I don't know if they still have these, but around the 4th of July, you'd be driving on the highway and there'd be these little shacks that would pop up that would sell fireworks. What's crazy is that they would sell fireworks to teenagers and they could buy whatever they wanted. And so around the 4th of July, every July, we would stop on the side of the road and we would buy up all of these different firecrackers. And I don't know if you know what a Roman candle is. Roman candle is this little thing that you can hold in your hand. It's pretty cool. And it has these, you know, a lot of times five different exploding um, 
little bursts. And you're supposed to hold it in your hand and hold it up like this, and they go off one by one, and it explicitly says, do not point this at anybody. But of course, if you're a teenage boy in the middle of Waco, Texas, that's exactly what you do. And so we used to have Roman candle wars, right? We'd have a stockpile of these Roman candles, and we'd point them at each other, right? We'd be diving and dodging these things as they're flying, whizzing by our heads. But that wasn't enough for us. Roman candles are small. We wanted something bigger. And so we'd grab PVC pipes. And what's great about a PVC pipe, it's the exact width of a bottle rocket. And so you can put a PVC pipe on your shoulder like this and get your buddy to put a bottle rocket in the back and light it, and now you've got a bazooka. Now, now listen, we weren't dumb enough to point this at one another. We'd at least point it away from us, but the thing about bottle rockets is they're really unpredictable. And so I remember this one time that we had pointed this bottle rocket down the, so the street. And as this thing took off, and it's kind of whizzing around, it hit a curb. And it ricocheted right back at us and exploded right next to our stockpile of fireworks. Now, by some miracle, nobody got hurt. But as you hear me tell that story, here's what you should be thinking. That wasn't just wrong, that was stupid. And that's exactly right. There are things that we do that seem so right to us in the moment, that are so wrong that the only way that you could describe it is that is utter foolishness. And in the Bible, that is the word to describe those who ignore God's word. It's foolishness. It's crazy. Why would you ignore the word of God? Psalms put it this way, Psalm 53. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Proverbs 18, verse 2. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his own opinion. And Romans 1, 21. I want you to hear this. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. When we ignore God's word, our foolish hearts become darkened. The light of God's word is no longer in us. This has been true ever since the beginning when Satan asked Adam and Eve, did God really say. So let me ask you this morning, what role does God's word play in your life? You see, I think we struggle to read God's word because we misunderstand it. This should not be a chore for you. It should not be a chore for me. It should not be this thing that we coldly check off our spiritual checkbox. We, could, we should recognize that this is God's very word. The God of the universe has spoken to you and me. And more than a rule book or a history book or a textbook, this is God's promise. And every page reveals that his son is the light of the world, has come for you and for me to light up our darkened hearts. So brothers and sisters, don't be foolish. 
Don't live life just trusting in your own opinion or left to your own fears. But pour over God's word for you. Because if all you have are your own thoughts, the world will be a very fearful place. But if you, like David, have stored God's word up in your heart, you will begin to recognize that the light has come for you, for you in all things. Lastly, the human heart is defiant. Verse 13, Samuel says this to Saul. He says, you've not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. So what's happening here? Saul disobeys the word of the Lord, and so he loses his kingdom. Saul cuts himself off from God's commandments, so God cuts himself off from Saul's kingly line. Now, as we hear that this morning, it's easy to think, that just seems harsh. That kind of seems excessive, God. I mean, that's, that's quite a punishment. Look, all Saul did was kind of jump the gun, right? All he did was just break one little commandment, and he lost his entire kingdom, But you have to understand that the king of Israel was the second in command. That the king of Israel was God's appointed king. Saul didn't just disobey. He was defiant. And there is a difference between disobedience and defiance. To disobey is simply to not obey a specific command. But to be defiant is to have your heart opposed to the authority of another. And what we'll see time and time again in King Saul is that his heart was defiant. And we'll look more at Saul's defiance next week. But what I want to say to you this morning is this. Saul was defiant because he was a man after his own heart. His own heart. He was a a man who was consumed with his own agenda Saul cared more about his own kingdom than the kingdom of God. And so God had to cut himself off. This morning, I want to ask you, whose kingdom are you trying to build? What kingdom are you truly about? What is it that occupies your heart? What is your heart focused on? Are you a man or a woman who's living and pursuing your own heart? Because if there's anything this passage teaches us, that's a dangerous place to be. But the good news is this. If like me, you find yourself this morning having a fearful heart, foolish heart, a defiant heart, there is good news. Because in the middle of God's punishment of Saul, There's a promise to you and to me. Look at verse 14. Your kingdom shall not continue because the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people 
and God rejecting Saul's kingly line, he was establishing a new kingdom and a new king. A king named David, who would be a man after God's own heart. As we will see this spring, that doesn't mean that David was perfect. No, he was a murderer and a liar and an adulterer. But he pursued the heart of God and he found forgiveness. And so before we come to the table, if you hear just one thing this morning, I want you to hear this. As God was building a new kingdom through King David, he wasn't just building a singular king. He was building a new kingly line. And king after king after king would come until the king of kings, Jesus Christ, was born. This king would be the true prince of his people and his government would have no end. You see, Saul was a man who was living after his own heart. David was a man who lived after God's heart, but Jesus Christ is God's heart incarnate for you. And he has come to light up our hearts, to remind us that there is nothing to fear, to show us that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him, and to recognize that he was the obedient one, who was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friends, will you open up your hard hearts? We will allow the light of Jesus Christ to illuminate those darkest places of your soul. And will you now respond to the good news, the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ, that he died and rose again for you to make all things new? I invite you now to pray as we prepare our hearts to come to his table. Father, be with us now, we ask. Prepare our hearts We pray that you would shine in them, that we would see the light of Christ. We ask in his name. Amen.